since I just recently got out of yogi land and uh, now I'm in teaching land, it's a little daunting to have a hundred pairs of eyes looking at me. So I have to say that first. (laughs) But you can look at me. You don't have to close your eyes. And uh, I was telling Steve on the way over here, well, I hope I make a point because I still have yogi mind. Um, Well, first I want to express my gratitude to all of my fellow yogis in the first half. Um, Your practice, your sincerity, uh, your just beginning again over and over again really, really helped me. And even when I looked around and saw that maybe it could be difficult for one of you or the other, who really knows, except you, um, I knew that there was this attitude of, okay, we'll just begin again somehow, some way along the way. And there were many difficult moments for me too, and that really gave me a lot of inspiration to keep going. So there were lots of times when it was excruciatingly painful to open to whatever was happening in the present moment. And there were many, many times for me when I had to take refuge in the Dharma or take refuge in the Dhamma, which means to me, in its most immediate sense, taking refuge in the truth of this moment because that's all I could know, and maybe sometimes hardly know. And I couldn't know any bigger truth than that. And taking refuge in the Dharma was only possible, taking refuge in the moment was only possible because of this practice, of this strengthening of quality, this quality of mind called mindfulness that we are practicing, that we are cultivating here. And two, there were many times when the mind and heart could open to the really gentle joys of being within um, some falling leaves, as you all probably know in your own way, or watching with my um, sunset crew the... (laughs) the changing colors of the, the sky after the sun had already set. That kind of gentle joy that's only possible because of that kind of openness, because of the possibility for mindfulness to be in that moment without any kind of filter, without any kind of wanting it to be longer, wanting the leaves to fall more, wanting the sunset to be brighter or holding on or pushing away because maybe it started getting chilly or cold. But that possibility to open to who I am fully as a human being could only be there because of the power of mindfulness. So I'd like to talk tonight about mindfulness specifically because it is our path of practice. 
It is for us a way that we know the middle path that begins to bring us to some kind of easeful opening to who we are, to life, to the truth of life, to ever-deepening truths. And because it is this very precious cause and conditioning, condition for our awakening. And so I wanted to devote just this one uh, Dharma talk to all the ways and aspects and manifestations and functions of mindfulness. It allows us the ability to experience the moment with the purest kind of clarity. It's so precious. And it allows that clarity of experience which is beyond or before the conceptual realm to open us to liberating insights, to the deepest, the purest kind of truths that we can know that help us to live our lives with more wisdom and more ease. And so that then we can begin to realign our lives when we experience those truths Bit by bit, we begin to realign our lives with that kind of profound understanding that we open to with mindfulness. And it also leads us to a happiness and peace that is totally unconditioned. It's not conditioned upon anything in this relative realm of existence. And that kind of experience uproots in a, in a very total way, filters of the mind, ways of experiencing life that don't allow us to live with wisdom. The uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion happen when this experience of the unconditioned comes through the power of mindfulness. There's a saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So if mindfulness is our path of practice, where where is it going? Where is it taking us? Well, by now you've probably heard many, many times that it's not taking us any place but the present moment. And for one simple reason... Well, basically, because that's the only place it can take us, to the present moment. But for the simple reason that the, the present moment is the only place, the only place where truth can be open to, the only place where truth and the ever-deepening truths that we open to can be experienced. They can't, these truths cannot be experienced in the past from other experiences that we have had or other beings have had, nor in the future by wishing for them or hoping for them, but only in this present moment, which is one of the reasons I, I believe that in the Satipatthana Sutta it is mentioned about this is the only way because it brings us to that place that can only open to the truth, 
the present moment. So which is why mindfulness is so, so precious and important. So I hope by now we know that what we're doing here is not really becoming better meditators, not really just understanding how to become more skilled at the methodology of practice, but we're becoming more awake, really, to our lives, to the truths of what we can understand and fathom as human beings, which can only happen, which can only be open to through our moment-to-moment experience of being present. We begin to know through coming over and over again to our moment-to-moment experience the terrain of our minds and hearts, which is very, very uh, important thing to do, even though we feel sometimes in reviewing a day or an hour or a sitting or something, well, what did I get from all that dukkha? You know, um, deepening truths are happening. And at the same time, we're beginning to understand the terrain, know the terrain of our minds and hearts, so that when we see over and over again, oh, this is how it is here. Oh, that's how it is here. Ah, okay, here's that place again. We begin to struggle with that less and less. We begin to relax into or around or with it more. And we become more easeful around what's happening, even though it can be excruciatingly challenging. There's this kind of way that we soften around it and where our energy isn't so lost in the object of our awareness or of awareness of mindfulness. But the energy is now more and more centered in awareness itself and not so lost in the object. So the kind of um, shifting takes place as over and over again we begin to face the moment just as it is. What's happening in the object of our awareness is it's happening. It's going round and round and up and down and it's hard and challenging and painful and all of that. But there's a steadiness too that's being developed because we're learning more and more that mindfulness, awareness, has this kind of energy that uh, that's where the energy is more, in the awareness and mindfulness. And the experience of being able to relax in the present moment, in what's unfolding, in the ever-changing present moment-to-moment presentness, is more and more okay because that's what is. And we learn to stop struggling and to receive it with a new kind of freshness. Mindfulness is our perfect teacher. Now, 
we have all had many, many teachers in our lives, you know, and, and for myself, my mother has been a wonderful teacher to me, and my, and many, many other teachers, and Manindraji, and Sayadaw Upandita, and many of you, and I can say that they have really all helped me through life to open my mother who gave birth to me, I deeply honor. But it has been mindfulness that really has allowed me to give birth to myself in a different way. So mindfulness is this kind of presence that reveals what's going on at deeper and deeper levels. And it's not an ordinary kind of awareness or intelligence, this mindfulness. It's a kind of extraordinary awareness. It has this extraordinary function to simply reflect what's going on in the present moment. That is its function, to reflect what's happening in the present moment. Now, no other kind of awareness does that. It's this particular kind of awareness called sati, mindfulness, that brings the attention fully into the present moment and faces it directly. Full attention gathers the attention and brings it into the here and now. And in some ways you can say it awakens us to the present moment to the profound truths that are only evident right there in this ever-changing present moment. This extraordinary kind of awareness is not something that has a momentum in our usual lives as ordinary beings. And so it's only through a kind of training that it gains a momentum that opens to the truths that are liberating. And so this is why the, of the, the importance of beginning again over and over and over. In our daily lives, we utilize a kind of awareness or intelligence that gets us through life. It helps us transact the business of life, helps us raise our children, There's a lot of wisdom in that kind of awareness. Intelligence also helps us to put food on the table, roof over our heads. And without it, of course, we can't function. But mindfulness is a different kind of intelligence, a different kind of wisdom that brings us to these uh, liberating insights, that changes our capacity to experience life in a different way, to experience ourselves and others in an entirely different way, to see ourselves not as separate, but to see ourselves as connected with everything and every other being. And so we learn through that kind of understanding that no separate selfness, how precious life is and how utterly important it is to be 
as pure as we can about our, our ways, our movements through life. It takes a, a kind of courageous effort to do this practice, as you all know, because it's, um, it's going in a different direction that the world is going. In fact, the Buddha described it as going against the stream. What we discover, even with a little mindfulness, and we might get discouraged when we discover this, and I think I keep discovering it as long as I've practiced, is still how unruly the mind is beneath the surface of my busy life. You know, when I sit down, just in coming here after uh, so many things to attend to, the life of a, a servant of the Dharma is just like anyone else's in long lists and many people to relate to. Um, I have a family, four children, two grandchildren. So there's, it's a full, full life. So when I came here, just to be able to have this degree of quietness was quite a blessing. But, you know, when you first be, are quiet, this kind of quiet, it's, you feel like it's a curse. Like, <laughs> oh, I want to go back home. But um, just the opportunity to open to what's really true in my heart and mind is so meaningful to me. So we begin to learn how unruly it is at the beginning, under the surface of things. But then we learn that if we can relax even around the unruliness, around the restlessness, letting it be, just kind of letting things unwind and having that steady, gentle, persevering effort, no matter where we are in the practice, whether we're just beginning or we've gone through six or seven weeks, that gentle, persevering effort just helps us through so much. When I first got here, it was like, um, I felt like I was kind of still in a whirlwind. And I just decided, well, I'll just follow the schedule. But as it happened a couple of years ago when I was here doing the, doing the practice, I was so kind of ashamed to sit in the hall, to tell you the truth, because I was so um, embarrassed that I would fall asleep. <laughs> And I would not be a very good example. <laughs> so I sat in my room a lot. And, I, you know, I actually just let myself just kind of go to sleep once in a while because I knew I had to catch up and to take, you know, little longer naps. And I gradually got into doing the eight precepts, not, not by kind of... Um, it was just by a natural choice that that happened. But I just kind of let things unwind and accepted that, yeah, the mind is unruly and it's a, a kind of whirlwind. And can I relax around it being chaotic? And, and so it happened bit by bit, just beginning over and over again. Just every time, you know, I began on the walking path wherever I chose, um, I remember one silly time when Upandita said in a, 
I don't know if he said it or if the translator translated it this way or I just misunderstood, but when you need to begin again, just pull up your socks and begin again. So I would just do that. I would bend down and pull up my socks and I'd say, okay, just this step, okay, just this step, you know, and it would get there, bit by bit, it would get there, and the strength and confidence and the courage would deepen, and I could just go a little bit further. And somehow, even if what, ex- what is experienced is really painful to open to, there's something profoundly fulfilling about being awake to it, where the energy is not so much in what is chaotic, but the energy is more kind of relaxed in the awakeness to it, the mindfulness to it. And there can be kind of like an, an odd, you know, ODD, or kind of an awesome, either way, joy about being awake to pain, being awake to the chaos that goes on, or the or the difficult stuff that's still unfolding in my own heart. You know, the, the, the ill will and the whatever it is that, that's, that I've learned to see in a more um, kind of selfless way, but still it's painful. So that becoming more awake happens. That awakeness is the quality of mindfulness. It's not anything different. Being awake is mindfulness itself, is that kind of extraordinary awareness itself. And not just awake to the senses that seem to be more awake, you know, and alive. There really is nothing more alive than the present moment. And mindfulness gets us there. And when we're alive and awake to, like, the, the, the colors of fall, boy, what good karma we have to practice here during this time. And just the sunsets, as I said, and just, you know, biting into a chocolate. <laughs> and, the, you know, the joy that comes from, from that. But not just the the awakeness to our senses or the ability to be with the challenging body and mind experiences or even the pleasurable body and mind experiences. But because when mindfulness is really there, when, it's, when it has gathered momentum and it's there kind of over and over again, moment after moment for a period of milliseconds even, and though in that time period, there's absolutely no pushing away. There's absolutely no holding on. There's not hanging on to the past. There's not hankering after the future. It's a kind of really rare happiness that arises during that time. Mindfulness is the cause of great happiness to arise. No matter what it opens to, there's a, there's a kind of happiness that's not dependent on how we want it to be or how we think it should be or any of that. But it's a kind of happiness that says, aha, 
and kind of leads into the moment with a heart and says, I can open to this moment. And there is that deep fulfillment there. There's this quote um, from the Buddha in the Sutta Nipata. I think somebody said this before, but it's a good one. Let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not at what remains in the middle. Wow. When this really happens, it's this kind of rest that releases that kind of happiness. When that kind of rest is in the present moment, talk about grace. You know, people ask, well, what is grace? Well, this is grace to me. This is a kind of amazing grace. When we're not pushing, when there's not like contracting or pushing something away, not liking, hankering after something because the moment isn't good enough, or, you know, fuzziness. But it's so perfectly, purely clear, and there's a deep rest in it. It's a kind of grace when we can feel peaceful even in the midst of this changing, very vulnerable world outside of us and inside of us. Because when we rest in that changing, vulnerable world inside and outside of us, what's happening is we're more aligned with the truth of how things are. Because that's the truth, that it's vulnerable because things are changing all the time and we don't have any control over it. And we learn that where is there a me or an I that can control anything anyway? I mean, these are the ever-deepening truths that we open to. But when there is this deep rest, this kind of grace, there's an alignment with that truth and there's this kind of empowerment that happens during that time. Even though it's so excruciatingly painful sometimes, there's this kind of empowerment that says, mm, mm, as my friend Ralph says, it's so sweet. Ralph Steele. So it's a kind of amazing grace when we rest in the moment like that. But, you know, if our, if our minds were able to settle naturally of its own accord, you know, the ordinary mind that has to live and um, survive in this chaotic world isn't normally like that. And if it were able to rest naturally of its own accord, you know, for somebody to say, to, to give the instruction. If we sat up here and said the instruction, gave the instruction, just allow the mind to rest in its natural luminosity. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be able to take that instruction. I couldn't do it, really. So the majority of us need some kind of training 
And this is what we do with the mindfulness, this beginning again, over and over, bringing our attention to what's happening in the present moment. We need this kind of reminder over and over again, this kind of skillful means, and the many methods that we use to bring us in a kind of balance, to evoke this kind of arising, the momentum of this extraordinary kind of awareness, this extraordinary kind of awakeness to the present moment. And so I think Sharon, as she often mentions in her Dharma talks, we as guides and your spiritual friends just have to find a gazillion ways to remind you to begin again, to just be mindful. I mean, um, we have to be really creative sometimes in ways to, to trick you, to entice you, to um, inspire you. Because I remember there were many times when I would go and report to Upandita, an extraordinary teacher for me, and, you know, would give report of how long the practice was, which could be, you know, out of 24 hours a day, sitting and walking many hours, like 17 hours a day, etc., etc. And when I was done, he would say, Please continue to be mindful. This would be all. So I always thought, oh, if I share the Dharma sometime, I'll try to be a little more creative. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying. (laughs) So here we use, um, we offer instructions for steadying the mind. This is one thing that needs to happen in the practice of bringing awareness to the present moment. There needs to be a kind of steadying of the mind. And so we use the breath here as an anchor. For most of us, breath is an anchor, although sometimes we use other anchors like sitting, touching, hearing, which are just as valuable and important. We try to use something as an anchor that's constantly present, yet at the same time when we bring our attention to is ever-changing, as everything is in this relative world anyway. And so when we use the primary anchor of the breath or whatever, it not only steadies our attention, but it also sharpens our attention. But the object is not to be with the breath exclusively. Of course, I hope we all know that by now. The object is not to keep yanking the attention back to the breath, but the object is to use that breath to steady and sharpen the attention so that whatever we bring the attention to from that place can also be steady and sharp so that whatever is open to is open to with that kind of steadiness, that sharpness, that kind of clarity or precision that happens around the breath, that we cultivate around the primary anchor. So what do we open our attention to aside from the breath or the primary anchor? Basically, it's everything that we can possibly experience as a human being. Sensations in the body, 
everything in the body, including the breath, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, and all of the various aspects of the mind, the processes of the mind. But it does this in a most direct way, not without thinking or commenting about it or um, analyzing, but just experiencing the moment very clearly. Yesterday, last night, Joseph talked about the five hindrances. And I just want to reiterate something which he may have said in a different way, is that these five hindrances, they're called hindrances because they hinder our ability to see clearly when we are not mindful. So I I want to accentuate the point, that point. They hinder our ability to see clearly when we are not mindful. But when we are mindful, when mindfulness is there, they are not an obstacle to liberation. They become a vehicle for liberation. So that everything that we open to in the body, the mind, emotions, everything that we open to, everything that comprises this body-mind continuum as a human being, is a vehicle for liberation. Many years ago, uh, when I first began practicing on this path of practice, on uh, the Buddha's path of practice, I realized that the kind of faith that carried me through was not enough. The kind It was a kind of maybe a little bit blind faith, a little bit bright faith. Um, I think Joseph's going to talk about faith soon. But it wasn't enough for me to just hear about the truth or to understand about um, illumination or um, liberation from hearing it from someone else or from reading it. But I wanted a deeper understanding of life, a deeper understanding of love. I really wanted to know the essential facts through a kind of direct experience, not through directing it somewhere else, although I I greatly revere the, the path that brought me to that place. My understanding for a long time was that profound experiences only came to someone else, to another person, um, in another place, you know, like in the time uh, of great beings, um, or in heaven, or to the, or to the blessed mother. And I realized that my faith was somewhere out there. You know, it was always through something else, not very direct, but kind of indirect. And there was a Zen proverb that really got to me. Gazing at the moon, you lose a pearl in your own hands. And I felt that, you know, maybe I didn't lose a pearl, but I wasn't really aware of that pearl. And so I wanted to 
be more aware of that. And when I first met my, my first Dharma teacher, Manindra, um, I asked him, and this is the only way I could ask it at that, that time, how can I experience God? That's what I really wanted out of a spiritual path. And Manindra had, had read the Bible and knew about these Beatitudes in the Bible, these, um, well, one of the Beatitudes are, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he just repeated that to me. And um, he asked me if my heart was pure. And, and I didn't think so. Maybe sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. And he went on to explain to me that on the Buddhist path, the, um, the word God did not exist. But the experience, what the actual experience of what he thought it might be, that purity, that natural luminosity, that existed, or that, however you want to, that didn't exist. I mean, <laughs> you know, the kind of emptiness. Um, um, but it was possible to experience that, that kind of open, empty purity uh, beyond the conditions, beyond this relative understanding of life. So I began at that time to turn that faith more inwardly towards um, maybe a way that there could be an experience of that more directly in my own heart. So I asked him, where, where could I begin? How, how do I begin? And he answered, well, there's no place else but the present moment. And there's nothing else that will bring you there but mindfulness. And so that's how we began on this path of practice. And I found that it's really true. And my path isn't finished yet. Of course, there's a lot more purification, but it's really true how it purifies the mind and the heart. And it allows for kind of a different relationship to what's going on in this mind, body, and outside, out there, in the lives and the world of others. It has so much directness and simplicity and practicality about it, this path of mindfulness, that it's kind of hard to believe sometimes. It's kind of hard to take in, like, all we have to do is be mindful. And Manindra would tell me many, many times, I'm sure Joseph, I think I've heard Joseph say it, not sure whether here, but other places, Manindra would say, your only job is to be mindful. But it's such a high order, you know. Your only job is to be mindful. You know, Manindra lives, of course, in India where there's lots of what he calls jungle, jungle or thick forests or whatever. And one day I came to him kind of really upset, overwhelmed, and said, I just can't, I can't do it. This was years ago in my practice. And I said, I just can't be mindful all the time. It's just impossible. I can't do it. 
And he explained that, you know, um, you know that it's helpful to kind of have that gentle, persevering effort to be mindful as much as you can, but it, it's not like you're going to be mindful every moment. So he kind of blew that concept out. And I just try the best I can. And then I came to him again one time, and I said, I really can't, I just can't. And I just felt like a puddle on the floor crying. And he just got, he had one of those days when he was just um, kind of had this sort of wisdom out and um, wisely impatient with me. And he said, look, he said, in his Indian lilting accent, which I can't uh, imitate, but he said, I'm not asking you to go out and cut the jungle. I'm just asking you to be mindful, moment to moment. But I might as well have gone out and cut the jungle. That would have been easier, I think. Manindra used to always say, too, that when mindfulness is present, all the other beautiful qualities of mind and heart are present. And, um, you know, he he would stay with us sometimes. And uh, every, of course, you know, I have four children and they have lots of friends and everybody called me mom. Well, he got into calling me mom. And so, um, and he liked this idea of mother, you know. Uh, He didn't have a long time to kind of relate to his mother, so he kind of chose me to revere, which I felt in one on one side, it was kind of an honor, but on the other side, it was kind of a pain because he, he would always explain to everybody the story. Um, anyway, they, like mindfulness is kind of like you. It's kind of like a mother. And when mindfulness is around, all the, all the loving things come around. You know, it's like a mother, like a good mother. I know we all didn't have good mothers, but... Um, And so all the beautiful qualities of mind and heart are nearby, you know, that really support mindfulness. So when mindfulness is there, compassion is nearby, loving kindness is nearby, pliability of mind is nearby, spaciousness of mind, equanimity is nearby. So many things support it and help us along. And also, in that moment of mindfulness, greed, hatred, and delusion are not there. Greed, hatred, and delusion are absent. So this is why sometimes mindfulness is referred to when there's this purity in the moment. It's kind of like Upandita calls a mini enlightenment. A mini, it's a moment of purity. When the, the defilements, as they're called, are not there. They're not uprooted in that moment, but they are absent in that moment, and so that's a big difference. But the more mindfulness is practiced and it gains momentum one moment after another, after another, after another, after another, those moments of purity begin to be more and more and more and more and we begin to discover what it's like to be, to live in that kind of mind. 
For moments we learn what a mind is like of an arahant, of a fully enlightened being. And it's what keeps us going. You know, even though there are many, many moments of pain, it's those moments of freedom when mindfulness is there and the mind is free from greed, hatred, and delusion that are so powerful and so profound that it's what brings us back to the practice. I mean, we wonder sometimes why we come back. But it's really the profundity of those moments that, it, that are just, they're, they're not as gross and grisly as the moments that we tend to remember, but they're so powerful, you know, that that's what brings us back because something deep within us knows that this is the way to freedom. And there's something, there's a wisdom deep inside that brings us back to that path, to that middle path of mindfulness, where we leave the future to one side and the past to the other and not grasp onto what remains. This is the middle path. And so not only do we learn from that ability of the momentum that arises moment to moment to moment that carries us through the practice that, oh, how sweet it is when greed, hatred, and absent and, and delusion are absent. That kind of purity draws closer and closer and closer of its own accord towards that unconditioned. And so it has that kind of momentum to bring the experience in that direction. And so it's onward leading towards that kind of unconditional peace. But the fruit of that is also that we begin to live our lives with a heart that we know for ourselves is is a good heart. And it's a deeply fulfilling kind of understanding. It's not an egotistical kind of understanding. On the contrary, it's when we understand how the idea of ego was never there in the first place, it's a kind of breaking up of all of that, where we begin to live through a greater spaciousness than a small ego sense, self-referencing sense all the time. And we can begin to respond to life from that place, so it begins to be deeply fulfilling from that kind of learning that happens, that kind of wisdom that comes from there, too. Mindfulness in the text is described as um, its manifestation is as protection. It manifests as protection. Because the fruit of mindfulness is a good heart. This is from Sogyal Rinpoche, 
The practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become truly useful to others. Through the practice, by slowly removing the unkindness and harm from yourself, you allow your true good heart, the fundamental goodness and kindness that are your real nature to shine through and become the warm climate in which your true being flowers. That is why I call meditation the true practice of non-aggression and non-violence and the real and greatest disarmament. It's said that mindfulness is likened to a mirror. It simply reflects what's going on. Not judging, not commenting, not criticizing, not comparing, not liking or disliking, just simply reflects what's going on. Not holding on to if it's pleasant, not pushing away if it's unpleasant. And because of this quality that it has of simply reflecting, it's this quality of mindfulness enables awareness then in that moment to sink into that moment and to know that moment without any filters at all without the filter of liking, disliking, or any of the other I just spoke about, but simply experiencing the moment just as it is. And so what happens when the moment is experienced just as it is? There's a kind of, as I explained before, a kind of getting familiar with the terrain of our minds and hearts so that we become more relaxed, more at ease with what's going on. We know the nature of what's arising from a non-conceptual viewpoint, from a viewpoint of knowing it's more um, individual or specific characteristics. We know the moment as pressure, tension, heat, coolness, like that, and not as, oh, this is fear, this isn't, in fact, this is my fear. And then we papancha that out to, you know, where it came from and where it's going. But it just knows this moment, it is more at ease with this moment, more and more and more. And then that easefulness around the moment, just knowing its unique characteristics, in Pali it's called, the, it, it knows its Sabava, the unique characteristics of that moment, beyond the personal sense of self or before the personal sense of self. So it knows the moment like that. And then that gives the ability to sink even more deeply and to know some liberating truths, to know how things are so are changing all the time, and not just like the seasons change or now we're going to have lasagna, you know, for lunch again. But just... (laughs) No, the lasagna was really good. Um, but, But to see how utterly 
swiftly. It's just changing so fast that, like, where did I ever get the notion that I could hold on to anything? You know, and we begin to kind of see through the moment in a different way, see the moment in a completely different way, and it's dissolving kind of contingent nature. So it, it opens up truths of the changing nature of everything, the impermanent nature, which gives rise to the unsatisfactory nature because everything is changing and moving all the time. Where can we hold on to anything as being permanently satisfying? Inwardly or outwardly? Nowhere. So that's what dukkha is. Can't hold on to anything being permanently satisfying. Momentarily, yes, but not permanently. And the contingent nature of everything. Everything's coming together moment to moment, changing and then falling apart again in the next moment, coming together, changing, falling apart. And we see that even in this mind and body, this is so. So how can we even, how can there even be a holding on to a sense of self? So it begins to align us with deeper truths that are there all the time. There's a 4th century Taoist Chuang Tzu that says, the perfect man, or woman I'll add, uses mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives but does not keep. So this is the way when mindfulness is in the moment that we can see or that it is seen. This is what's happening. It's just reflecting what's going on. Just reflecting, not commenting, not trying to make anything of it. And you don't have to figure out these truths. They arise. They come because when mindfulness is there, the wisdom factor draws nearer. The wisdom factor that it's wisdom that sees anicca dukkha anatta. Mindfulness reflects. Wisdom recognizes anicca dukkha anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the non-selfness. I want to say one more thing. Um, there's so much about mindfulness, but uh, so much is enough too. There's something that I came across in um, the writing of Bhikkhu Bodhi about mindfulness that was really helpful to me some time ago. In his writing, he said, by clearly recognizing which mindfulness does and naming what is going on, two harmful devices are disengaged and disarmed. And these two harmful devices are ignoring 
and camouflaging. So ignoring is like delusion, right? When we're not really experiencing the moment clearly. Um, Or we're not even wanting to be with the moment because it's so painful in one way or another. And camouflaging is when we layer on top of the moment a comment about what's going on or push it away because it's unpalatable or hold on to it, you know, kind of layer some attachment on it because it's so nice, we want to keep it there. So those harmful, two harmful devices, he calls them, are disengaged, disarmed, ignoring and camouflaging. Also in the text, uh, in the Visuddhimagga, which is translated as the path of purification, um, I came across this one little passage that said, the proximate cause for mindfulness to arise is strong perception. It was just like that, strong perception. So what aids us in perception? So I just want to put a plug in here for noting. (laughs) Because really noting clarifies perception. So I want to encourage you, inspire you to, when you need to note, don't have to note all the time, but try to bring it in once in a while or overcome your aversion to it and try it out. You know, just noting really, really helps because what it does is it, it really gathers the attention and focuses the attention in one area, that's the present moment, on what's happening right now. And naming, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, naming helps that. Because there can be a lot of things going on, as you know. And sometimes, um, you know, there's background stuff, and then there's this foreground stuff that's happening. And so by naming what's going on in the foreground, it sort of zips our attention into and brings our awareness, gathers the attention, the energy into that place. And, you know, it's like aversion. But we're not with the name. We're with the experience of it. So it's like dropping that and then being with the experience of it. So that's how noting can be really helpful. It clarifies perception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.